What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. And I hope you guys are having an amazing day. And there's a lot to get to. Briefly going over the UFC Fight Night and Rio Rancho card. So what are the things that we know now? Well, Jan Blachowicz definitely deserves a title shot, but does he deserve it over Dominic Reyes? That's the real question. At the end, I think what the fans want is going to tip the favor to either fighter, and I think that's going to be Dominic Reyes. So I do think we'll see a Reyes rematch before we see Jan get the title shot. Diego Sanchez is weirder than ever before. (laughs) I didn't think that would be possible. I mean, his coach... I don't want to say anything too much, but in my opinion, he seems like one of those McDojo coaches. You know which ones I'm talking about, right? It's either that or he's on the next level that we just do not understand. And looking at Diego Sanchez's results, how can we knock on him? He's 3-1 and one in his last four fights. How can we say what he's doing is wrong? That two-win streak that he had before his loss to Michael Chiesa was his last win streak since 2011. I don't know, man. Maybe he's doing something right. Maybe he's onto something here. We just might be haters. Watch him say. Sanchez goes and defeats like a ranked opponent after this and then everybody's gonna start training with his coach I don't like how the stoppage happened I don't like what Diego did out there he obviously looked for a way out some people there's a few out there that's gonna say it was very smart on his part because if he has an opportunity to win the fight and get the win bonus why not he was already losing the fight it was the third round it wasn't like he was gonna do much else until he pulled off you know the 300 IQ asked if he was gonna win by DQ once they kind of alluded that he might have he was like yeah man I'm just gonna take it whatever veteran move right there that's the ultimate veteran move there's been no move more veteran than that one and the other big one was that John Dotson knocked out Nathaniel Wood or TKO'd him and it actually matters to say it like that because a lot of people think that it was stopped early personally what I saw was Nathaniel Wood was putting up a pretty good fight I really don't know how this fight was scored I wasn't scoring that fight live but once Nathaniel Wood started charging forward in the beginning of the third round and John Dotson used his speed advantage throwing those left hands it wasn't even like left right left it was left back up left again cracked Nathaniel Wood right on the jaw cleanly the thing that I saw that it might have been a correct stoppage was the fact that John Dawson hit him like seven, eight times unanswered and not one of them was defended. Now, people can kind of mistake in that moment with it only took like a second, two seconds, but John Dawson is so fast, he can punch you seven, eight times in that two second mark. So there could be a lot more damage than you actually see. And Dawson does not throw his hands with a lot of swing, with a lot of momentum. It's a lot of speed, man. And you saw that even the punch he cracked Nathaniel Wood with, it didn't seem like the most powerful punch, but it was enough to rock him. And we know Dotson hits hard. He dropped Demetrius Johnson like three times in their fight. He's knocked out TJ Dolashaw. He's caused a lot of damage to a lot of people. So I can agree with the ref's decision to stop that fight. So coming off the UFC 247 card, we saw some of John Jones' comments about the fight and saying how he won saying the things that Dominic Reyes did well and what he didn't do well he said that Dominic Reyes's best moment in the second round was when he pursued Jones and Jones just dodged all the punches very well and he was pretty much saying that his defense was kind of rewarded in a way he also alluded that it was Dominic Reyes's fault for gassing out and all sort of stuff right and then Joe Rogan came out afterward and said a couple things about how Jones should have won because of like backyard, schoolyard rules. And if it was a fight to the death that Jones was going to win. And so that all ties into the rules. And there are a couple things a lot of people, I won't say most, but a lot of people are not understanding here. So Texas abides by the old rules. They're way worse than the new rules. Like, I'm so glad we moved past that. Mostly, mostly the United States went past that. But people are still thinking that Texas is going by the new rules, where the basis is about damage. Pretty much damage 
effective striking and effective grappling are kind of equal and everything else falls below that in an almost superiority complex of a rule set. If the grappling and striking is dead even, which is very, very unlikely to ever happen in any fight ever, you go to the next thing and I believe it's like octagon control or aggression or one of those two, you know, and if that's completely equal, it goes to the next. It's pretty much a system where effective striking and effective grappling is going to be the only thing we're ever going to look at to judge fights. Like, it's going to be very hard for fights to be even in both of those aspects. And I'm talking about completely even to the technical minor details. But we're not looking at those rules. So regarding the tweet that John Jones made that showed that Dominic Reyes was missing all of his punches and that was the best moment of the second round, I replied that according to the rules, and this is alluding to the old rules because that's what Texas was going by, Dominic Reyes, even though he's missing, he's still winning through aggression alone. It gets a little bit weirder of what is judged higher than the other, what is superior in the judging criteria. And that is why being aggressive and having octagon control would sometimes sway judges to give the round to that fighter. So even though Dominic Reyes was missing, he's still winning that exchange, right? Defense is never scored. It's never scored. Not even in the new rules. The only reward you get from defense is the position you get on them and the countering ability you present after you defend strikes. That's it. You get no points for defending anything. From takedowns to transitions on the ground to strikes on the feet, you get nothing in the judge's eyes for that. So those are a couple things that people aren't understanding about that fight. And that could also correlate to the fact that John Jones was winning some of those rounds because he was the aggressor and he was the one that was gaining octagon control. But still, those first three rounds, even though he had octagon control and not too much aggression, he was still getting outstruck and damaged much more heavily. Now, it's really hard to quantify what is superior to what, but I still believe that damage and getting outstruck should have more than just octagon control, which leaves most people to believe that Dominic Reyes won the first three rounds. Even though he lost the fourth and he lost the fifth, which I agree with, first three, there's no way Reyes lost those. Another thing about what Joe Rogan says, so Joe Rogan, I don't think he was being completely for real about it, but he was just making a kind of a devil's advocate argument as to John Jones winning. If he actually believes Jones should have won, because of this, because if it was a schoolyard rule set involved, John Jones would have won because he was the one that ended on top in a way. You know, and in a street fight, whoever has the last punch wins the fight, which is not even true. If you get beat up for two minutes straight and then you just crack the guy once at the end, no one's going to think you won the fight for cracking the guy once at the end. But I also understand that he's saying that the last rounds, the championship rounds, should give more merit as to who should win the fight. And I do not agree with this at all. And he was pretty much saying it's the fact that if we go longer, Jones is most likely going to win. But that's just speculation. And also, these guys are training for five rounds. If this was a 10-round fight, they will train for 10 rounds. And I guarantee Dominic Reyes is going to have better cardio. More specifically, better pacing for the fight. Because he came out there pretty strong in the beginning probably confident he would last for five rounds at that pace, but you cannot go and change rules due to just mere chances and speculation. The chances of Jones winning a fight to the death or a longer fight can look like he was going to win eventually, but you still don't know because you changed the entire dynamic of the fight. Who knows, if there was a sixth round, Dominic Reyes can absolutely land something on Jones and knock him out senseless. Even though he's gassing in the fifth, who's to say he wouldn't just catch John Jones in the sixth? So you can't go and say John Jones should win the fight because he had a stronger ending to it, right? He had a stronger fourth and fifth round, which means that he would have won the fight if the fight was longer for a 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, endless fight until a finish, you know? You cannot say that because it never happened. And the rule set that they were presented with 
isn't that as well. They train for five rounds, they fall for five rounds, they expect the five rounds, they have a game plan for five rounds, and even if there was a surprise sixth round all of a sudden, who's to say Dominic Reyes can't win that round or doesn't come out there with a better showing or catches John Jones? I'm not saying it's more probable, but it's still something that can happen. So you can't go by mere speculation and chances to side with a fighter. You know, you have to go by the rules that we have, right? Even though if they're terrible old rules that are outdated, you have to go by it. There's nothing we can do. So I thought the whole Jorogan argument was pretty silly at the end of the day. Here's another thing a lot of people have been bringing up, and I 100% agree. I've agreed with it ever since it was first talked about, and that is open scoring. I wish they do open scoring. I know there's some counter arguments to that, and that is if a fighter knows he's winning, he's just going to coast. But there's a counter to that. If a fighter knows he's losing... He's going to bring the heat on. He's going to force a fight in some way. Now, it can be boring if a wrestler, a grinding wrestler, let's say, knows he's winning and his opponent is lacking takedown defense for the fight. I can understand how the fight could be boring and there could be a coasting factor, but the fighter that is losing knows that he's losing. What's worse than this is if both fighters think they're winning. John Jones, Dominic Reyes, they probably both thought they were winning. Or in another case, you know, if both fighters think that they're winning and both try to coast on each other because they think that they're winning, now you got a worse scenario. At least one of them, if you have open scoring, at least one of them knows they're losing, which is better. Just better overall, more exciting, more entertaining. And actually, the fans, the fans seeing the open scores makes it a lot more dramatic and it makes it a lot more entertaining because we know we're like wait what this guy's losing he's got to do something so not everybody's going to pay attention to the losing fighter and see what he's going to do and see what the winning fighter if he starts getting tagged out there how is he going to secure the round i think it makes it way more exciting better for the sport all around if we have open scoring and here's the thing man every other sport has open scoring every other sport knows who's winning and who's losing before the end even wrestling has it and that's an old formula that just works if it works for most sports why not adopt that you know Imagine a basketball game, really close basketball game, but they didn't know what the scoring was. Let's say they go to like 90 points to 90 points and they don't know who scored more. It can leave a lot of confusion, but when there is open scoring, when we actually see the points on the board and both teams are like tied at like the fourth quarter or whatever, everybody who has seen other sports like that and the scores are so close and we're nearing the end of the game, we know how dramatic it gets and how intense it gets and everybody's on their feet to see who's going to get the tiebreaker here. It could be a very similar thing with MMA. Imagine a draw of a fight. Two fighters are going into the fifth round and they see that it's tied. Two 10-9s, two 10-9s. How crazy intense would that fifth round be? Everybody would be up on their feet just anticipating what is going to happen here, man. And imagine being in the audience. It would make the crowd audience experience a lot more rewarding as well. I think open score is amazing. I think they should just do it. And the UFC just announced that they're going to return to Dublin in August of this year. And automatically, a lot of people think it's going to be Conor McGregor, but it's a fight night card. They are not going to put Conor McGregor on a fight night card. I guarantee that, even if he wanted it. And that just leaves who's going to headline it. They always want a popular, great hometown fighter to headline the card. To be honest, off the top of my head, I don't even know any other Irish fighter besides Connor now in the UFC. A lot of them have been cut, and I know there's Gunnar Nelson. He could probably headline, but at this stage of his career, it could be pretty underwhelming. Some people are saying Darren Till, but Dublin, especially that area of Ireland, isn't part of the UK, so I don't think he's going to be fighting in Dublin. I wouldn't rule it out because a lot of the English people would fly to Dublin to watch it. I don't know who else. They might sign a lot of Irish fighters just for that card, maybe. They've done this in the past with China. And the next big card is going to be UFC 248. Israel Adesanya versus Yuval Romero headlining that card. But how's the rest of the card look? Oh yeah, the co-main. I cannot wait for that co-main event. Weili Zhang versus Joanna. That's an amazing fight, man. 
Derek Brunson versus Edmund Shabazian is a great fight. Very much looking forward to that. Neil Magny versus Li Jing Liang is an okay fight. Sean O'Malley versus Jose Quinones. That's a really good fight. Some prospects on the prelims. Just an overall solid pay-per-view card. You know, nothing super crazy. Pretty solid all around. And a lot of people were knocking on UFC 247 before it happened. See, on paper, it was worse than 246. But as you guys have been watching my videos, listen to my podcast, I always say, man, the cards that don't look that strong tend to be the strongest cards. Tend to be the most exciting cards. And you remember the fighters that really shine. So look at the UFC 247, Chaos Williams. Now he's a guy that some people are looking forward to. He made headlines all over Twitter and stuff like that with his 27 second knockout. You know, fighters all around that card started making a little bit of a name for themselves way more than they had before, which means a lot to them. This one with a lot of solid fights should be pretty good. I mean, Adesanya versus Romero. A lot of people just didn't want this fight. Some people were questioning it because Romero's coming off two losses. Adesanya said three in a row, but it's actually two in a row. I don't know if he forgot about the Rockhold knockout from Romero. But um, two losses in a row, and he gets the title shot. Now, people just see the losses and say that, how can you come off a losing streak and get a title shot? But you also have to look at context, and that's what they're doing here. In both of those fights against Whitaker and against Paulo Costa, you can absolutely say that Romero won both those fights. You could say Romero was the disputed champion. So it's not like Adesanya is fighting someone who is just out of the loop, out of the elites, just not performing that well. Against the best fighters in the division, Romero is somewhere around equal with all of them. And there are a couple other things here. Romero may be the nightmare matchup for Adesanya in this division. Romero is the guy that a lot of people have been saying that even though Adesanya has a chance against Whitaker and chance against Costa and these other guys, Romero is a guy he should not be fighting. He should be advised to keep furthest away from that Cuban monster. So there is fan intrigue because of the stylistic collision and you have to give all the respect to Adesanya. He called out Romero because he hears and he sees these remarks, right? He's a guy that's on the internet. He sees what's going on. He sees what the fans want and what they say about him and what they say about what's hard for him and as a champion to call out the fighter that most think is the hardest matchup for him because he wants to silence the doubters that deserves all the praise and all the respect in the world even if he loses Adesanya has gotten everybody's respect forever because he's doing what champions rarely ever do Champions like to sit back and wait for challengers when a champion calls out not just calls out the hand pick his opponent's easy fights He's calling out probably the hardest fight in the entire division for him, right? It's not like he called out Darren Till or something like that. You know, he's calling out Yoel Romero, the most powerful and the most experienced wrestler in this division. Probably the most powerful striker in this division. Him and Colstar are neck to neck. The most athletic fighter and one of the most unpredictable fighters in this entire division with an iron chin. Now... Can Adesanya get through that? Yes, of course he can. Romero's striking is very exploitable, especially on the attack. On the defense, he can be a little bit tricky, right? Because he lulls you to sleep. He keeps distance very well. He's very fast to move in and out, even to evade opponents. He does keep his hands up. He's very good at blocking shots, especially straight punches like you saw against Luke Rockhold. But it doesn't matter Adesanya, right? Adesanya is a very good counter puncher, and you saw that in his last fight. So if he could just draw out Romero to strike with him a bit, draw that explosion, he can counter. Yoel Romero. He's very fast and he has sniper-like power, right? Not the brute force devastating power, that sharp impact, right? He knows where to hit you. He knows how to hit your soft spots and put you to sleep. But can he find those chinks? Can he find those little holes in the armor of Romero? I think only on the attack really, or if he backs up Romero to the cage and starts picking at him and getting through the guard. Now the wrestling of Adesanya is going to be tested like never before, if Romero goes and wrestles, that's the only thing. Romero doesn't wrestle too much anymore. And we all expected Whitaker to try his wrestling out because he was training 
in wrestling before that fight with Adesanya and he just never used it. We'll see if Romero does something similar if he just strikes with Adesanya or he's going to try to attempt some wrestling exchanges. And we know Adesanya does have very good takedown defense. We saw that against Derek Brunson, who's a very strong wrestler, actually out-wrestled Romero when they both fought each other. But this is going to test Adesanya's wrestling for the rest of his career. Right. If Romero commits with his wrestling and Adesanya is able to stuff all the takedowns or look really strong and look really efficient at defending them, that will show that Adesanya's takedown defense is great even at 205, I believe, to stifle a lot of those fighters up there. This is that test and that's another very interesting thing about this fight. Right now, my early prediction for this, I am going to go with Israel Adesanya. Now, I will say that Romero might be the hardest fight in Adesanya's entire career, but I think Romero's explosion, his blitz, is a little bit too exploitable a little bit too vulnerable especially for a guy like Adesanya who has seen the best how much different can Romero explode at Adesanya compared to uh, Robert Whitaker because the way Whitaker was exploding at him he was really lunging with his punches and never hit anything Romero is more effective at that kind of style and he's a little bit more unpredictable with the strikes he throws from spinning stuff to switching his stance it's not just a big right overhand he is southpaw as well so it could just change the angles just enough to catch Adesanya possibly. But I do think that Adesanya is going to counter Romero a few times, defend the takedowns because of a maybe obvious setup or just obvious explosion from a long range that Adesanya is keeping on him. And I do see Adesanya maybe winning a decision or a very late TKO. I do see Adesanya getting cracked maybe in the mid-rounds, third round. We know how strong Romero is in the third round. But I cannot wait for that fight. And especially from the stare down from them too. Now people really see the intensity and maybe the competitiveness between them two. Kind of strange how just a stare down can explain so many things to people. So many things to fans and even the fighters themselves. A lot of their questions get answered from the first time they look at each other. If I'm not wrong, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, he stared down with someone, and I don't remember who it was. It might have been Roberto Duran the first time when he lost, but he stared down with someone once, and he knew he lost the fight. Very strange, right? And that Coleman event is absolutely insane. I love that Coleman event. Weili Zhang is starting to be a star. She's very important for the Chinese audience, but she is fighting one of her hardest fights. Joanna is the greatest strawweight of all time. If Zhang can go and beat Joanna, that does a lot for her career. I mean, it establishes herself as the best in the division, for sure. Because even though she beat Jessica Andrade, a lot of people believe that Rose should have beat Andrade or was on her way to beat her, but had probably a lapse of focus and stuff like that. The fight happened how it happened. Andrade won at the end of the day. But does it really mean that Andrade is a better fighter than Rose? On that day, absolutely. But in general, there is a debate. But on the other end, there is Joanna as well. If you can beat Jessica Andrade, Joanna, and Rose Namajunas, you have closed all arguments as to who is the absolute best of the division. And she has beat one of them. Now she's going after the other, the most dominant strawweight of all time. And stylistically, probably her hardest matchup. No one keeps range on opponents like Joanna does. Very few fighters are able to strike the way Joanna does with that much efficiency inner combinations, inner ability to set up strikes, inner versatile style. And Zhang does fight pretty short, right? She has good sidekicks and stuff like that that can really reach out there. I know she's training with Sanchai and that is gonna pay dividends for this one. I mean, who better of a Muay Thai fighter to prepare with than Sanchai? And we know Yuana is a Muay Thai fighter. She's a little bit more of that Dutch style, uses a lot more hands than kicks. But still, man, you are learning from the best of Muay Thai. I mean, it's almost like training with Floyd Mayweather, Game prepared for someone who uses boxing a lot. So I don't know how this training camp is really going to affect Willie Zhang's game. And it's really going to show how her game planning is and how her fight IQ is out there. 
Now again, she does fight short. Her kicks can be long, but her punches are very short. And I don't know how she's going to get in on Ioana. Maybe threaten with takedowns, show her strength in the clinch, work her way up, get into that dirty boxing exchange, start using her hands on the inside when they separate, stuff like that. Right now, my early prediction is I do think Ioana is going to win the fight. I can absolutely be wrong. I'm going to see more Willie Zhang's fights. I actually haven't seen too much from her. I know she's on an insane like 20 win streak or something like that. But right now, as of what I know, which is pretty limited, I think Ioana might win. But definitely if I cannot wait for it. Now let's go to the questions here. We're going to start with the most liked comment from Azraf Razel. Who do you think will win the rematch, Jones or Reyes? After seeing Jones' performance against Reyes, how do you see Jones a heavyweight against guys like Stipe and Francis? Well, the thing that is true is Jones does better in the rematch. He's very cerebral, very calculated. When he doesn't understand things in the first bout, he is very quick to make adjustments for the second. You saw that in the DC rematch and the Gustafson rematch. Now, the difference between the DC fights were he was still throwing that left high kick. If people remember, in the first fight, he was still throwing it. He knew that was a weakness. He talked about it before, but he didn't necessarily get DC to fall into it. So instead of just throwing it up there, he had to condition DC first. That is the thing I believe that he knew he needed to make an adjustment at. So he started going to the body. Left hook to the body and left body kick and also knees to the body. So it gets DC to drop his hands instinctively when he sees a strike coming at him. So he threw a body shot, moved back, and then threw the left high kick, and DC dropped his hands and leaned into the kick. In the Gustafson rematch, he used leg kicks a lot more effectively. Now, part of it is that Gus probably wasn't the same fighter, but his takedowns were a lot better time. He just tuned up his techniques and his timing. In this Reyes fight, He's probably going to do something very similar. He's just going to fine-tune some of the timing of his takedowns, and he knows the leg kicks work, so he's going to keep up the leg kicks. But I still see the rematch being a very tough fight for Jones, because it's hard to see a whole lot that Jones can do differently that's going to give him some success against Reyes. He's going to be more aggressive when he pushes Reyes backwards, but he can get countered, right? And that's what Reyes wants him to do. Can he attempt to take downs? Well, we've seen that Reyes is strong enough, just physically at any given moment, to stuff and throw off Jones from deep double legs right? Almost every single takedown Jones went for was very, very deep. So how can you get better at that? What can you actually do differently than when you had an almost 100% secured takedown and he still stuffs it? Maybe now he can fake the takedowns and go over the top. Do stuff like that. Using the takedowns and striking as one attack. And we've seen him do this in the past before from faking the ankle pick to a spinning back elbow over the top. Faking the takedown, coming up with a flying knee. Jones is very capable of throwing out many, many techniques. So it is going to be pretty unpredictable of what Jones is going to do. He's a very smart fighter. He knows how to break down opponents. He knows how to research his opponents. But then again, Reyes is the same way. Reyes came out with a very good game plan. Very smart fighter as well. So what is he going to do differently? That is something we don't know because Reyes has never been in a rematch before. And Reyes now has felt five rounds for the first time in his career, and he didn't look that bad. Fourth round, he was still pretty strong. Fifth round, fading a bit. But we do know that Reyes is going to start working on his cardio, if not his pacing. So he can be even more dangerous, but the technical aspect of Reyes, what is he going to show differently? I can see him being a little bit more cerebral with his attacks. Rather than charging at Jones and just throwing his hands like he did a couple times out there, probably picking his shots and putting traps in front of Jones. I see the rematch being a lot more technical and a lot more dangerous for both fighters. And how would Jones compete at heavyweight? Well, this kind of confirmed my theory that Francis Agano is the hardest fight for Jones, period, across all weight classes. One, Francis is much stronger than Reyes. He has very, very good takedown defense. One shot will put out Jones. 100%. His leg kicks are so powerful as well. He has the same reach as Jones practically. Just a complete nightmare for John Jones in my opinion. 
A lot of people were fighting back at that theory of mine when I said that like a year ago that Francis Ngannou is the hardest fight for John Jones. People said they get taken down. Now people are understanding Francis's takedown defense is actually super solid. I mean, to defend Cain Velasquez's takedowns, Curtis Blade's takedowns, a few of Stipe's, and a failed takedown attempt can be the end of it for John Jones. You cannot allow Francis to even stuff one of your takedowns. But where Jones might be successful against Francis is probably in the clinch. But then again, he's fighting against a much stronger fighter. And we saw how Overing was able to deal with Francis in there, and it was not that well. But how does he do against Stipe? It's still a very tough fight for him. Now they're going to be relatively the same size. Stipe might have a couple pounds over Jones, but nothing major. When it comes to boxing, Boxing, it might be the biggest threat Jones has ever faced in his career, right? One punch knockout power, pretty fast hands for a heavyweight, and perfect form in his punches. Throws a jab very well, throws a two very well, the straight. Uppercuts are very strong. His hooks aren't the most impactful, but he will throw them just to cut you over the guard. It's that one, two especially. But I have a feeling Stipe might have a hard time getting past Jones' lead hand as he extends it forward because Stipe doesn't move generally that well unless he's throwing punches. When he's throwing punches, he moves very well, but it's going to be at a reach disadvantage, so he has to get closer to even land punches. And I just think those few extra inches that Stipe is going to be away from John Jones, it's going to be hard for Stipe to get past that unless he goes for the takedowns. So I do see Jones and Stipe being a competitive bout. I can see either win, to be honest. I think the leg kicks from Jones are going to be very disruptive. That reach, the long extended lead hand is going to disrupt that rhythm as well. Maybe some of the jabs and there are going to be a couple takedown attempts from John Jones and also in the clinch. Jones is going to be much more effective than Stephen Miocic. Way more effective. He's going to be very dangerous in that area. So long range and clinch range, that's where Jones is going to have a big advantage over Stipe. And frankly, even if it gets on the ground, I think Jones is a much better grappler. So I might lean John Jones against Stipe, but Stipe has a high fight IQ. You saw that when he fought Nganu. Against Daniel Cormier, I still think he beats Cormier. I think that style, he has it down. Imagine, you know how Jones is good in a rematch? Imagine the third fight. The guy probably, <laughs> you probably feel like he studied your game for 50 years, you know? And then we go to Andre. How well would you have done a UFC 1? Personally, me? Um, I think I've answered this before. Now I'm going to be pretty undersized. I'm going to be around Hoist Gracie's size. Many martial artists today, not just me, probably a lot of you who train and who even fight could have done very well at UFC 1. We're talking about guys who just are very effective at one art and don't really know how to blend in anything. When you know all forms of striking, all forms of grappling, it's very, very hard for the opposition to beat you when they're only doing one thing. And it doesn't really matter how big they are, to be honest, because it's not just they don't know the styles. They don't even know the movements. Look at how they were moving back then. They were just standing in front of each other. It would greatly confuse them if they see someone being fluid with their footwork moving around the place. And even mentally, there's going to be a difference there as well. When you see something for the first time in front of you in a fight, it can confuse you and create a lapse and focus. When they see like 20 things they've never seen before, you could really throw them off. So even the mental game is very, very different. So how would I have done? I think I would have done pretty well. Would I win? I don't know. I think I would have done pretty well. Just like a lot of people would that don't even fight. They would go to Asher. What happens to the middleweight division and Israel's star potential if Romero goes and wins? I think I've answered this before as well. Pretty much the only one that wins out of all of that are obviously Romero and Robert Whitaker. But I believe Whitaker would want to rematch Adesanya. But the fact that Romero wins the title and Whitaker has two wins over him, it would thrust Whitaker at the top of the rankings and he will get the next title shot. Everybody else kind of loses because Adesanya is a fresher face. Romero's fought more guys in this division than Adesanya has. So with Romero winning, a lot of those guys who were in the running for a title shot or getting up there, now all of a sudden they're not. Now there's a few fighters that will leapfrog over them. 
and also it'll throw a wrench into the UFC's plans in making Adesanya such a big star. And then we go to, I can't think of a good name, so this must suffice. Worst matchup for each current champion. I'm not going to get into that right now because I am working on my fourth edition of the Nightmare Matchup for 2020. And if you're new to the Nightmare Matchup series, I pretty much go over every single champion in the UFC and I name the worst matchup for them, a la the Nightmare Matchup. And also named the three other biggest threats to them in the division. So I recommend you guys watching my last edition of it of 2019 to kind of get a feel of it and how that goes down. But 2020 is going to come up very, very soon. I've actually been working on it for the last couple days. And then we go to Pumpy FN. Who would win these matchups? Prime Gus versus Reyes. I think Reyes would win this. His kicks are much better. He's more devastating of a puncher. He's very good at counter punching. I think Gus has overall a better boxing game, but I think his takedowns are going to get thwarted and he's going to be left using a one-dimensional style. He's not going to kick with Reyes. He will get countered for it. So he's going to be left to box and just move around. And I think Reyes will be able to pick him apart. And I think Reyes will come up with a very good game plan to take care of Gustafson. They will be in opposite stances as well. And I have seen a bit of a hole where Gustafson starts jabbing the opponent and moving out to his left. If Reyes takes off that angle to the right, steps on the outside, he can bang him with a hard left hand. There are a couple things there I believe that Reyes will take advantage of. Darren Till versus Jared Kennanier. This is the fight we all want to see. Although Kennanier is a brick wall and he has huge, huge knockout power, especially countering, he's very good at timing shots when you come in on him. It's actually very deceptive how well he is at timing opponents. But the thing is, Till's movement is something Kennedy really hasn't fought before. Now he did fight Jack Hermanson, who moves around a lot, but Hermanson has a very set pattern, and he moves almost like a Frankie Edgar. A lot of his movements aren't based on reactions. It's just to move around so the opponent can't hit him. Hill's a little bit trickier with his movements. He's very good at moving off angles, very good at moving in and out. He's much better at moving on reactions. So, can he time some of the power punching of Kennanier when he tries a counter tail coming in by moving in and then moving out on the punch and then connecting with a very quick left hand? He could probably do a couple things like that. Now, I will say that Jared Kennedy is obviously the stronger fighter. He's very powerful with his kicks as well. So he can actually take some of the movement away with the kicks. Till likes to do that number where ducks in, bumps into you to push you away. And I don't think it's going to work on Kennedy. I think he will get countered after attempting one or two of those. So at the end, I'd say that Kennedy would beat Darren Till. Robert Whitaker versus Kelvin Gastelum. This is a fight I've always wanted to see. And I thought it would be a very tough fight for Whitaker. Now, Whitaker coming off a bad knockout loss. And Gastelum coming off a split decision loss to Darren Till. I would have to say that Gaslam would be in a better state of mind as he probably has that fire under him for what he thought was a bad decision loss to Darren Till. So he probably wants to prove something. That makes Gaslam a very dangerous fighter. Whitaker, I don't know where his head's really going to be at. The last time he suffered a knockout loss was against Steven Thompson. And after that fight, he went on a nine win streak. So it doesn't seem like knockout losses will affect him that badly. Getting knocked on Australia at middleweight where he's not cutting as much as he was at 170 against Adesanya who he was very, very confident he would beat. Didn't give Adesanya much credit for a lot of things he was doing. I don't know. I still say that Kelvin is at a better state of mind. But stylistically, I think it's a tough fight for Whitaker because whenever he engages Gaslam, he gets thrown into like a 50-50 danger zone. We know Gaslam could take the heat. Whitaker doesn't have that great of a chin. Good heart, good ability to recover, but he gets hurt commonly. And the way Gaslam throws his hands, I don't think Whitaker's going to be able to take one of those, to be honest. He took a flush shot from Yoel Romero, but his chin was much fresher. Getting cracked by Romero in that five-round fight, getting knocked out twice against Israel Adesanya in the same fight. 
I don't think his chin is going to be the same against Gaslam. I think Gaslam, if he throws that heater of a left hand, Whitaker would be put out senseless. And that's the thing. Whitaker likes to engage. The only way he's going to really win this fight, I believe, is staying far away, throwing a lot of push kicks, jabs, right high kicks, and looking to counter Kelvin Gaslam. You do not want to let that bowl in on you for five rounds. That guy has power for five rounds. He has better boxing on the inside than Whitaker does. So if the fight ever gets exchanged and close, Gaslam has such a big advantage over Whitaker. I think just a couple of those exchanges and Gaslam will win the fight. But a lot of people will say that Whitaker did pretty well against Romero for the majority of the five rounds, even when Romero got in on him. But there's a difference between Romero and Gaslam, and that is... Romero is very good in intervals. He's very good at exploding on you. He's not the best at keeping on you with combinations or tracking you down. He's not the best at doing that. He's very good with those split explosions. Gaslam, if he's on you, he keeps the pressure and the power on you with incredible combos and precision. So there is a bit of a difference when it comes to the technique. Romero likes to explode, reset, lull you back to sleep, explode on you again. Gaslam, he wants to get in on you, and once he gets into his space, he does not want to let you go. He doesn't want to reset ever. Because he's always a shorter fighter, he's gotten used to not being the one to reset fights. In a way, I see this fight being Whitaker being the Matador, Gaslam being the Bull. Whitaker trying to fight his way to a decision, probably looking for some counter shots. I don't think going to be too much of a threat to Gaslam, the way Gaslam goes and strikes, and the way Whitaker doesn't usually counterpunch, unless the opponent greatly overextends himself. If anybody's going to be finished, I say Gaslam finishing Whitaker. To be honest, I'm going to go with Gaslam, but I can go the other way if I look at some footage of the two. And last question, do you think Woodley can become champion again and how dangerous is an aggressive Woodley? Yes, he can become champion. Will he? I don't think so. I think first of all, Edwards is going to be a very tough fight for him. A lot of people are sleeping on Edwards still. I know there's part of the fan base where they understand how dangerous Edwards is now, but there's still a large audience that does not believe Leon Edwards is anything special. This Woodley fight is going to silence all doubters or prove a lot of people right. So first of all, he has to get through Edwards and that's a tough fight. Can he get through Kamar Usman? I think Usman has his number, to be honest. And can he get past Jorge Masvidal? Now, if you guys don't remember, I did put Jorge Masvidal as one time the nightmare matchup for Tyron Woodley and I stick that today more than ever before after what Masvidal was able to do in the past year. And I was talking about Masvidal in 2018 being the nightmare matchup for Woodley. Now, I don't think Woodley can handle him. And how dangerous is an aggressive Woodley? Much more dangerous than a defensive Woodley. And it's been historically shown. His takedowns are now a threat. He can mix up things. He can set up traps. When he's moving back, he really only has two weapons. A lunging right hand to counter you or cause distance between the two. And a double leg that gets very easily timed. Unless he gets you when you're throwing a kick or something like that like it happened to Wonderboy but then when you turn it on its head and Woodley starts mixing up things setting traps working for the double leg now able to use his kicks a lot more effectively he is much much more dangerous in every which way much more successful in landing the right hand his kicks can now land with authority his take does not become a problem that you have to think of an aggressive Woodley is one of the absolute best fighters in this division but just something in his head something in his mind doesn't allow him to go that way doesn't allow him to be aggressive I don't know what it is, and every fight he backs up, and he's the one that just does it. Like, nobody's pushing him. He just backs up to the cage for some reason. Every fight. He eventually turned it around on Robbie Lawler, and once he was starting to be aggressive, he knocked out Lawler instantly. But I just don't know what it is. It's a mental block. Then we go to Kana. Are traps gay? <laughs> no. I didn't know what traps were until you guys kind of introduced me to them, asked me this question a few times. And I looked it up. And if I want to answer the question, honestly, intrinsically, it does not. It doesn't mean 
that traps are gay. So it just depends how you look at it. For like years, I thought you guys were talking about traps as in the muscle group. I may be a millennial, but I feel like a boomer sometimes. And then we go to Sebastian Chantry. How is your MMA training going and when will you have your first fight? Do you see yourself reaching the UFC one day? Now, my MMA training isn't going that well right now because I actually haven't been training for a few months now. For many reasons, to be honest. A lot of a lot of responsibilities for the past few months. If you guys don't know about my mother, she had to go under some major surgery because of a tumor growing on her hearing nerve, an acoustic neuroma. But she actually had to go through three surgeries for it. They are considered brain surgeries. They didn't technically touch her brain, but they were right next to it. They had to go there twice because of some uh, cerebral spinal fluid leak after the first one. So they had to fix that in the second. And then in the third one, the side effects of being dizzy weren't really going away. So they actually had to take out her inner ear in a third surgery. So she practically only has one ear. Not aesthetically, but technically on the inside, she doesn't have an ear on her right side. So, you know, I had to take care of a lot of things. Take care of her house, take care of her, take care of the pets, her bills. She was in rehab and not allowed to work for three months so it was a lot you know there's a lot to there was a lot of things i had to do you know and also with school also the videos and trying to keep up with training as much as i could it was just a lot on my plate MMA training has been halted, but I am going to get back into it i gotta go into the fitness gym because i gotta shape a bit i'm very used to eating a lot like when i'm talking about a lot i weigh 170 i'm 5 foot 11 i am not kidding when i say i eat like i'm some obese person i have a crazy metabolism absolutely crazy i can eat a whole pizza box not gain any weight and i'm used to doing that because i've been training for so long so hard and i started to carry that on after i stopped training right it just became a habit for years i've been eating like this ever since I was like 13 years old. Now I'm starting to feel effects of it. I had to go down on the eating habits. I gotta change some things, but I have gotten out of shape because of that. And that's why I gotta start going to the fitness gym before I go into MMA training, get in shape again, because just mentally, I can't just go to the gym and train because it can like take over my life a bit, knowing how out of shape I actually am. The last time I went to train, I was in tip top shape, able to do everything very well. And then next thing you know, I go into training and I just can't do anything. I am normally a very competitive person. If people start getting the better of me because I'm out of shape, I could be my worst critic. I want my training with content making and school, as well as taking care of the responsibilities at home and stuff like that to be kind of balanced and because I'm uber competitive if it actually happens where I'm getting taken advantage of or I'm getting beaten at these areas of my training that never really happened before training to get back to the way I was and getting one up on my sparring partner or training partner that will become like priority to me like it will not escape my mind and I've been there with various different things before and sometimes it can be a bit too obsessive when it comes to productivity or keeping balance in your lifestyle. And I just don't want that to happen. So I'm going to go to the fitness gym first, get in shape, go every single day, get back into uh, MMA training. And when I'll have my first fight, I really don't know, but hopefully this year. And as it happens, I'll try to get like some footage of it that I could put up on my channel. And I might even break myself down. And I actually think they'll be really cool. And do you see yourself reaching the UFC one day? If I'm going to be honest with myself now, I need my first fight to really know for sure. As I think about it, I really think there's no way I won't be if I continue my training and focus on getting there. Before I started putting MMA content on the channel, that was something I thought about for a couple of years before. So I started putting MMA content on the channel in the beginning of 2017. So about three years ago, I was off and on for the first few months, but I was 22 years old then. And I started MMA training at the end of 19 years old, almost 20 years old. So for a couple of years, it was something I wanted to do, but I really had to get into BJJ. So I wasn't really ready to get my first fight for the first couple of years. Now I know when I get in shape, start training all and stuff. I've known for years now I've been ready for a fight. It was something I thought about a lot back in 2015 
I mean, we're talking about before Conor was the undisputed UFC champion. And to be honest, Conor McGregor was a big reason of why I wanted to get into the UFC because nobody really fought with that kind of style before. It's a style that I share a lot of technique with. You know, I come from a Taekwondo and boxing background. I did boxing more than I did Taekwondo, but I did Taekwondo when I was younger. So it kind of blended into itself and it looks a little bit of what Conor does as well as a mix of what Rose Namajunas does. So when I actually saw those two fighters, that's why when you guys ask me who are my favorite fighters, I do say Conor and Rose are two of the fighters I like to watch the most because they come up very similar background as well as they do a lot of things that I practice all the time and I did before. I learn more from those two than I do from anybody else for my own game. And once Connor burst onto the scene, it really encouraged me, gave me more confidence like, wait, he's doing that? He's able to move on this angle? His stance is like this? He's able to throw these kind of kicks? Wait, maybe, maybe I should try this thing out, man. That's what really came into my head. And then I started watching more and more and really got confident when I got into the gym, tried it out, got into sparring. The thing I would have to really focus on first is to get in shape and then get the first fight. And then after the first fight, do I want to continue this? So thank you so much for the question. And then we go to Peachy Parasite. Which female fighter? Okay, this is pretty serious. And now we're now we're back into the theme here. Which female fighter's ass would you eat? Well, if you guys have watched some of my earlier podcast episodes, I do consider myself an expert in the field of anilingus, the arts of 39ing. I am pretty confident that that is my strongest skill. Wow, I cannot believe I said that with a straight face. But to answer the question, I think no one looks better in the UFC than Rachel Ostovich. And after watching that Looking for a Fight, the last one of Dana White, man, that confirmed it for me. And then we go to, I cannot pronounce your first name, I'm sorry, Hamile Eunice. Who are the goats of each weight class? Heavyweight is Stipe Miocic. Light heavyweight is John Jones. If you don't include PEDs, I will have to say Daniel Cormier. Middleweight, Anderson Silva. If you don't include PEDs, I will have to say probably Chris Weidman. Ah, but it's tough because he left that weight class with a very bad loss streak. But his run as a champion was stronger than anybody else besides Silva. So I'd either say Weidman or Whitaker. Welterweight GSP. Lightweight, either Habib or Tony Ferguson, we're going to find on April 18. Featherweight, Jose Aldo. If you want to debate me on that, I'm all for it. Bantamweight, Dominic Cruz. Flyweight, Demetrius Johnson. Women's featherweight, Chris Cyborg. Women's bantamweight, Amanda Nunes. Women's flyweight, Valentina Shevchenko. And strawweight is Joanna. And then we go to Arik Rayford. If DC beats Stipe and retires and Francis beats Rosenstrike, where does this leave the heavyweight division? Well, you would have to do Ngannou versus Stipe for the vacant belt, and I think this question's been asked before. Well, if Stipe wins, it will it will seem like the division is very weak. It will look like the division doesn't really have a champion until someone new and young comes up. If Ngannou beats Stipe, everybody will acknowledge Francis as the rightful champion, the best fighter in the division, but there will also be questions as to how would Ngannou fare against DC? That question will be looming forever. Whenever a champion retires with the belt, it leaves the division in shambles for a pretty long time until some young guy comes up and claims the belt. Then everybody acknowledges that young fighter as the rightful champion, as someone who is probably even better than DC. And what it really all comes down to is, how many title defenses can you really get? If Ngannou becomes champion, there'll be questions as to who is better DC or Ngannou as the king of the division. But if Francis gets like two title defenses or three, everybody will forget that DC was the champion. Everybody will focus on Ngannou. He is running for possibly the greatest heavyweight of all time if he's able to get three title defenses. You know, Stipe as champion after DC beats him and retires. 
the division won't look that appealing until some new blood comes in there and just wipes everybody out. And that could take a very long time. Then we go to Jared I. What could actually be done to improve the judging and scoring system? Now I know Luke Thomas's argument that nobody really knows, and I agree, nobody actually really knows. But the argument was never, do we know what will fix the scoring system and the judging system? It was, what do we think? And what we think, the theories we can come up with, I think open scoring would be good. I think more judges. I think replace the judges with more credentialed minds of the game. It could be experts in the field. Yeah, it gets tricky with fighters. It really does. Because there is going to be a bit of bias. So I'll say no fighters and no coaches involved. There should be some criteria, some requirements. Maybe some kind of quiz or test that can determine your knowledge of the sport. Maybe some journalists can do it, especially ones that have been in the game for a long time. There should also be a reviewing process of the judging system. All of the judges should have almost like a court after the fight, a very short process, maybe like 5-10 minutes, of them getting asked questions by the journalists as to why they scored fights the way they did. And if their explanation doesn't really follow the rules, their decision as to who won the fight should be open to a reversal or a null decision, something that just does not count. And maybe that's why if you have more judges, you can eliminate a judge's call on the fight and go to the other and see what they did, add up their scores at the end of the fight, and now we have a new winner or something like that, you know? That's just off the top of my head, to be honest, I didn't think about that until now. But there should be some reviewing system immediately after the fight. And we should have the ability to question a judge's decision. And it should also matter, right? It's not just, oh, they answer your question and that's it. Nothing happens after. Um, and as for the scoring system, I like fights to be judged as a whole. Not round by round. I understand round by round can be pretty fun at times. If you're going to do the 10 point must system, I think points 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 should be used. What's the point of 10 points if you can't use the first six of them? And if that's too much, you could go to a five-point must system, right? And use points one through five. And there should also be some clarification as to how you can score one point, two points, three points, four points, and five points. Such as, if you get dropped, that's an automatic 5-3 round. If you drop the guy twice, that's an automatic 5-2 round. If you get the guy in a near submission, this is why you need judges that understand grappling. You get someone in a near rear naked choke like James Cross got on Trevin Giles, that should also warrant a 5-3 round. Now then you would probably ask, what if they almost get the rear naked choke twice but they never change position? Now the only way you can get a 5-2 round if you get two close rear naked chokes in the same round would be if the position changed. And then you got the position back and then you sunk in almost another rear naked choke. That would be something different. And there could be also this. Let's say you get a close rear naked choke, it fails, the guy gets out of it, but then you transition to a close arm bar and almost tap the guy. That should be a 5-2 round as well. Or you could do it to automatic 5-4 round instead of 5-3. Because a close knockout can be seen as closer to the end of the fight than a near rear naked choke, you know? It can be. So I say a close submit should be a 5-4 round. Another one after you transition positions and get back into another submission or even the same submission should then warrant a 5-3 round, etc, etc. And if you're going to justify as a whole instead of round by round, you could still do some scoring criteria as to like, you could probably do a 10 point must system for a whole fight. That means you only go up to 10 points. Let's say getting knocked down gives you a 10-8 round. Let's say one fighter drops the other twice throughout the fight. That warrants an automatic 10-7 without applying anything else that's happened in the fight. But that fighter that got dropped knocks down the other guy. So now it's a 10-8 fight for the guy that got two knockdowns. And let's say after that knockdown, the guy almost falls into a guillotine or something. Now you can say the fight is even. You understand where I'm going with this? So there should be some clarification as to what scores for what. Instead of just guessing how impactful some things are in a fight. I really don't think about this 
is too much to be honest. But these are some things that came off the top of my head. I'm gonna go through three questions very quick. We're gonna go with J Locals Art. Jose versus Cruz. I think Aldo is one of Cruz's hardest matchups that could ever take part. Every time Cruz runs into Jose Aldo, he's gonna get countered. The leg kicks are definitely gonna be a huge weapon against Cruz. Takedowns are not gonna work against Aldo. Very hard fight for Cruz. Then we go to Stampede OP. Hey Weasel, who wins these fantasy matchups? Habib versus GSP now. I think GSP wins. Number two, Connor versus Volkanovski. If Connor could still make featherweight like before. That's actually a really good fight. I will stick with Volkanovski, but it's pretty close. Number three, Colby versus Mike Tyson in a street fight. Colby Covington. Number four, DC versus Reyes at light heavyweight. I definitely think DC has a better style against Reyes than Jones has, because DC's wrestling is a lot more adaptable against a guy like Reyes. And DC also is very strong when he gets a grip on you. I'll stick with Reyes at the end of it though. I think DC will get kicked in the legs a lot. A lot of head kicks, especially the southpaw Reyes. He can find that left high kick very well. DC can fall into that shot. Remember, Reyes is very good at game planning. Yeah, I go with Dominic Reyes, definitely. The hands are a little bit too much as well. Number five, Poirier versus Kevin Lee. I think Poirier wins convincingly. Much better striker, very good grappler. They both don't really have a great chin. I think Poirier probably has a better chin than Kevin Lee. Maybe because Lee cuts much more than Poirier does. But all in all, I think Poirier right now, Kevin Lee's still a bit young, Poirier would win against Kevin Lee. GSP versus Ortega submission grappling. I don't know. I really don't know. Probably Ortega at 170 as well, so Ortega doesn't cut much weight. Isn't that crazy to say? At 170, Ortega doesn't have to cut much weight. And the guy fights at 145. I, I just never seen GSP in a grappling match before, so... It's going to be hard to say, but Ortega is very high level. Also, I love your videos and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, man. And then we go to Stragley, and it's a question a lot of people have probably thought about after that fight. How would Izzy versus Jones go after seeing the Reyes fight? I could say for certain, Izzy's chances in a lot of people's eyes have skyrocketed after seeing what Reyes was able to do to Jones. Because Izzy has great takedown defense. Right, he's not as strong as Reyes or Jones, so maybe there could be a strength discrepancy between them two, but... He's absolutely excellent with movement. A better striker overall than Reyes. Longer reach than Reyes. Faster than Reyes. Maybe not as powerful, but definitely has enough power, enough precision, and enough timing to hurt anybody he hits. He just hits him at the right time in the right spot. So I do think the striking will be a lot more dangerous for Jones against Izzy. But I don't think Izzy is as good as Reyes at defending takedowns. I think he's very solid, but you have to be more than just very solid to stop Jones. You definitely need a lot of strength as well as technique. So I'll go Jones. I do see Izzy lighting him up on the feet. I don't think Jones can do much against Izzy on the feet. The leg kicks are going to get countered. Head kicks and body kicks will get blocked very easy and put Jones into a very dire situation. I think Izzy will charge forward a bit right behind the retraction of the kicks to get in on Jones, even in the clinch. Izzy's very dangerous there as well. I think Izzy's way too sharp for Jones to throw anything unwarranted with his hands. If he goes out there and swings and overextends, he will get countered 100%. It's not even a doubt in my mind. If Jones throws something out there with his hands and misses, that Izzy won't counter him. I think every single time from the first one to the last one, Izzy will counter Jones every time he misses. There's a lot to retract for Jones, and when he throws his hands, like even against Reyes, he does overextend a bit, and I showed that in my breakdown as well. But the wrestling, I think, will be easier for Jones against Izzy than it was against Reyes. And if it gets to the ground, no Izzy's very slick down there. We know he can be very dangerous, but I don't think he's enough for Jones. 
Jones grappling, like I said for a long time, I think Jones grappling is a lot more dangerous than the striking. So great questions. And we'll go to the Twitter questions here. We're going to start with Johnny Machiavelli. Your thoughts on Habib refusing to fight Connor? Connor needs a 10-win streak before facing him. While Dana rants for the rematch. Awesome analytics. Love your work. Slash Sweden. Shout out to Sweden. Thank you for the question. So I think Habib refusing Connor is just out of spite. He just hates the guy. He's not going to give him a chance. He doesn't want to give him that opportunity. He's even turning down $100 million from Saudi Arabia. That's how much he hates Conor. He will give up $100 million and more just to not give Conor this opportunity. Like, that's real, real hate for a man. And we know about the Dagestanis, man. Those guys, they're for real. They're all about respect. They're very hard people. And if a lot of fans had some skepticism about Habib's hate for Conor, this pretty much shows it. He's willing to fight anybody else. Tony Ferguson, GSP, Poirier, Justin Gage. He's willing to fight anybody. He just does not want to see Conor given this opportunity, especially if he doesn't earn it in his eyes. He needs to do something that he did to eventually get up to a title shot. And he could probably even feel pridefully, if that's a word, that if Connor gets a title shot without going through the same thing Habib did, Habib might feel a bit disrespected. He probably feels that the organization and stuff see Connor as more valuable than Habib in a way. Now, us looking from the outside, we can see that being rational. But in Habib's mind, it can be that, man, these guys actually value and respect Connor more than me, and I'm their champion? Nah, man, I'm gonna make sure he's not gonna get a title shot against me until he does what I did. A lot of people think that Habib's scared of him. How are you scared of someone you pummeled for four rounds? And it wasn't even that hard of a fight. <laughs> like, what is there to be scared about, to be honest? You aren't really scared of someone if you already thoroughly beat them down. He can also take on another mindset here, and that is, Connor said a lot of things that could be harmful. He said a lot of things that... A lot of people, especially Muslims, as well as some Russians, Dagestanis especially, are not going to like. He could probably do it again. Connor could probably say a bunch of other things again that could separate a lot of people. Maybe Habib is seeing this as more of a humanitarian thing and doesn't want people to separate because of things Connor's saying, right? Because a lot of people, I know people personally, a lot of people did not like what Connor said. And it could probably create a lot more tension than Connor thinks. And not even with him. It could be Dagestanis hate Irish. You know, it could be a lot of other things, man, just because of what Connor said. And maybe Habib is seeing this through more of a humanitarian resolve. Very good question by at KB1044. Do you think that a mistake people make against Habib is A, backing up too much, B, not punishing him immediately after a failed takedown attempt, and not keeping a fight at the center, i.e. his takedowns are easier to defend when he can't use the cage? Now, of course, it's not as easy as just get off the cage. Just don't back up. It's not that easy, obviously. But... A lot of fighters seem pretty, if not intimidated, worried right when the fight starts. Happened to almost everybody. And I have to actually give Conor McGregor some credit. He's one of the only fighters that didn't fall into this. He started to back up Habib immediately in the fight. Kept Habib on the cage. Ally Quinta did the same thing as well. But as the fight drags on, the intimidation or the worriness gradually increases. Because you start to feel his power. Feel his strength. Get put under some of his technique. Get put under a spell in a sense. And then all of a sudden you just see yourself backing up. You see your feet moving back for some reason. Because now he's starting to march you down. And you get worried with a strike and the takedown mix up. And you just don't know which one he's going to go to. Because Habib can throw a strike. Combo into a takedown. Just as fast as he can throw like a 1-2. So it's very very hard to deal with. One wrong mistake and Habib's on your legs. And when I saw this happen to Dustin Poirier, it especially surprised me how well Habib's able to do this to opponents. How well he's able to put them into his own game. Because Dustin Poirier on paper has a very good style to fight Habib. On paper. But he did not fight the way he usually fights. This was one of the only times I've ever seen Dustin Poirier turn into a sniper. Poirier's a combination puncher. 
with good power in every shot. He turned into a sniper against Khabib. That was one of the first times I've ever seen that happen to Poirier. And it was something I said before the fight that you cannot fight Khabib as if you're a sniper. It cannot happen. You cannot go that route because you're banking too much on too small of a chance. Khabib is not defenseless on the feet. He actually has very unpredictable, unorthodox defensive skills. He's fought some of the best strikers to ever compete in the UFC already. And he's defended most of their strikes without even going to the takedown. Just standing in front of them. That's what makes this fight with Tony Ferguson especially interesting because Tony is a guy who doesn't like to back up. And Tony has a mentality where he does not play the opponent's game. Everybody he's fought has played into his game and he's forced it upon them. So we have two guys with an ironclad mentality of controlling the fight the way that they desire. And what you have to do against Khabib is you have to strike back. If you don't strike back, if you don't fight with him, or if you don't throw shots in his face with constant volume, you're going to back up. It's just going to happen. Because a lot of times, Habib is not even throwing strikes at you. He's just walking you down. And I can see it on his opponent's faces. They are confused. They are waiting for the shot. They're waiting for the takedown. But as they're waiting for the takedown, they're getting backed up. They're not letting their hands go. They're not letting Alpha fly out there. And that's something that Tony Ferguson does. Tony Ferguson will throw strikes no matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter if he's trying to counter you. Doesn't matter because you're walking him down. He's not going to allow anything you want to do to happen. So that's pretty much what it comes down to at the end of the day. You just got to throw strikes at him. You got to punch with him. You got to fight him back. You got to gain Habib's respect. You got to make Habib think, wait, I can't just walk him down like this. I got to set things up now to just walk him down. Instead of setting things up to get takedown, I got to set up things so I can get him to back up a bit. Now this is bad. Then that's what he's going to have to start thinking. Great question. Then we go to at Matthew Melange. If a 165 pound division were to be made, which division do you think will lose more talent? 155 or 170? Part two, who do you think would be the champ of 165? Well, I think 155 will lose more talent because there's a lot of people cutting a lot of weight to 155. And 170, you got more guys who are cutting a lot of weight to 170 rather than Cutting just a little bit. Of course, you got guys like RDA, maybe Stephen Thompson, who would move down to 165. Maybe even Hori Mazadal, you know, you never know, Colby Covington. But I think there's a lot more 155ers who would move up. Because you got guys who are cutting like 30 pounds, 20-something pounds to make 155, and it's a bit much, man. And who would I think would be the champion there? Probably Habib or Tony Ferguson, one of them two. Colby Covington would be in the running. Hori Mazadal could be in the running as well. Stephen Thompson would be a threat there. It would be a very strong weight class. Really quick had Jack Booty. Rank these based on who had the best case for beating Jones. From most convincing to least convincing. Okay, most convincing. I'll go Reyes, Gustafson won, and then Santos. Although Gustafson won and Santos are very, like, even. The way those fights kind of went down. And according to the scoring system, Reyes for sure had the most convincing win over Jones, you know? But then we go to at Treadstone with three E's at the end. Does Jones' performance against Reyes solidify GSP's legacy as the GOAT? GSP easily cleared out the majority of three welterweight eras except Johnny Hendricks, possible PEDs, while Jones had trouble with his own era and even more trouble with the next. Yeah, people forget, man, GSP fought his generation for a long time, his era for a while, and he completely dominated all of them. He had a couple stumbles here and there, got caught a couple times, you know what happens, but when you look at the entire fight and every single one throughout his career besides Johnny Hendricks and his losses, of course, he thoroughly dominated the most part of those fights. GSP's the GOAT. He's the GOAT. And people can still say Jones is, maybe because of how long he's been on top and he has the most wins in title fight history and stuff like that. But look how his fights are going. His last three fights were not that well performed. Two of them were not easy for him. Against Smith, he didn't look that well either. He didn't perform that well. Against Gustafson, he almost got beat. 
against DC the second time. He was losing a lot of those exchanges, you know? You really saw that kind of thing from GSP, although he lost, which could be an argument for John Jones, but he avenged them, so how much does it really matter? You know, just the Johnny Hendricks fight, GSP really showed that he was human. Although, you know, people have their speculation about Hendricks and PEDs, although there is no concrete evidence of it, there is some skepticism as to how his career continued after that fight, and especially after the Lawler fights. And the fact that he was missing weight, his body changed, he went up to middleweight, still looked really bad there, and Blaze Driti. How to know you're a quote-unquote thing, man. Like, you're an astonishing analyst, can't seem to grab my call. Thank you so much, man. Um, I really don't know what it is. It might be the fact that I just don't analyze MMA. I pretty much analyze everything in life. Like, I just can't get around it. It's just how my brain works. Everything I do, it's hard for me to even be alone and not have anything to do because I just, my brain goes, man. It just keeps going. It might be the millennial thing. It might be I'm almost Gen Z or no matter what I do, no matter where I am, I always analyze the situation, always analyze the environment. Even as I'm sitting here in my comfortable chair, if I'm not doing this podcast right now, and let's say I'm not doing anything, I'm analyzing where my water bottle is in front of me. I remember where my camera is. I remember where my microphone is. I remember everything. I analyze everything instantly. It just happens for me. Let's say I'm out with my friends. I'm at like a club or something like that, or a bar or whatever. Immediately when I get in, I know where everyone's at. I know who's being rowdy. I know who's being loud. I know who's being quiet. I know where is safer to be inside this environment. I'm not trying to do it. It just happens. And I tell my friends, you know, you know, just stay away from those guys over there. We'll stay over here. You know, let's get a seat over here. Then we just go and have fun. So it just might be the way my brain's wired. I analyze everything, everything. That's why I kind of have a uh, an addictive personality. I know I control it. I can really get obsessed or really have excitement for a lot of things and it might be because i analyze it to the molecular level this is a big reason why i can't watch most movies especially movies that are supposed to be more realistic from mobster movies to action movies investigation movies whatever you call those crime movies because how my brain goes when i'm watching these is what was the director thinking with this scene this character just got stabbed but he's still living for 30 minutes inside the film without any medical treatment or anything like that how is he still alive apocalypto right this is the stuff I start thinking about and I just can't watch that stuff so anything I watch when it comes to entertainment besides sports it's gonna be fictional because even if I think about what the director or the person behind the scenes what they're thinking is it becomes a lot more artistic to me rather than that's too fake or that it shouldn't happen like that but when the work is fiction now the reality based perception doesn't take part so I can kind of just like enjoy it for what it is and that ties into MMA MMA is as real as it gets sports is real so I'm analyzing the technique why things are working the way they are. When I'm looking at a movie, how is this working together from behind the scenes and I look at an MMA fight, I still have that same mindset, but it just changes the results of my analysis. You know, ever since I started watching MMA, the first thing I did when I saw, for example, uh, Anderson Silva versus Vitor Belfort, wasn't the first fight I watched, but one of the first big fights that got me into it. Before it happened, I immediately thought like, wait, Anderson's a really good fighter. Vitor's a really good fighter. But there's no way Vitor's going to be Anderson because this, 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 and that. That's immediately what I started thinking when I knew that those two were going to fight each other. And I saw the highlights of each fighter. And then once I said that, and then once I said that, my cousins were saying, no, man, Vitor's a monster. He's this and that. I'm like, I don't think he can get in on Anderson. I think he's a little bit too slow with his feet to get in. And I think Anderson... He's too slick with his counters. And that's just how my brain was working with MMA. And ever since, I was analyzing fights in my head with my friends. Like I said, my first video on this channel was a breakdown of Rousey versus Nunes. And the reason I made that video was because I saw a lot of people's analysis, even from JRE, Brandon Schaub, to, you know, many other even breakdown channels. They were missing so much, so much. I'm like, wait, why is everybody missing, first of all, the front kick? Not just that. 
how everything was set up for Nunez. What did Rousey exactly do wrong rather than Nunez was powerful, Rousey just not a good striker. It, there's more to it than that. There's several layers of things to uncover than just she's powerful, she's not a good striker. But we've seen many times before, worse strikers have defeated powerful punchers, you know? So there's more to it. What is it? That's what I kind of got down to and it just keeps carrying on and I analyze more, I learn more as I analyze and I guess it's just my thing as you say, you know? So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to get a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. And again, thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next video.